Welcome to the KBB Review Podcast from Tavis Media. This is episode 27 and I'm managing editor Andy Davis. Always have been. We're going to talk psychology today and before we get started I want to conduct a little experiment on you to demonstrate how easy it is to manipulate your brain. It's not too difficult to do, so bear with me. Now think of a number between 1 and 10. Okay, you're thinking of the number 2. See? You've no idea how I did it. Later in the show, I'm talking to Philip Adcock, and he's an expert in the psychology of shoppers and how you as retailers can steer their brains into thinking what you want them to think in the most positive possible way, of course. We're not a cult. And it's absolutely fascinating, so I really do recommend that one. But up first, we have the view from one of the biggest brands in the sector, Hansgrower, and I'll be chatting to UK Managing Director Jay Phillips. How does he see the market right now and what will happen in the future? So it's really insightful stuff. But before we get to that... This media shameful plug time and we're sticking with the podcast the numbers we're getting on this show are way beyond anything i thought we'd get but i want more of you to subscribe to it through a podcast app on your phone that way you'll get a direct notification when new episodes come out and you can listen to it when you're out and about walking the dog going down the new socially distanced pub i don't really care but you can find us by searching kbb review or one word on apple podcasts google podcasts or spotify depending on your channel of choice and if you like the show please 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 leave us a nice review as it really helps us keep going right let's talk now to another of the industry's big brands to see what their current thinking on the market is and hopefully down the line we've got jay phillips the managing director of hands grower in the uk jay are you there I am. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, sir. Always marvelled at how brilliant the internet is, but it's also incredibly hot. Uh, it, it the is. The is unbearable today. Yeah, likewise. Same here. Yeah, absolutely insane. So, thank you for ta- taking time out for us. Thank you for sort of sweating at the other end of the computer for us. And Well, I want to get a bit of an idea of how you're getting on and how you're facing the market, but before we do that... I think everyone knows Hansgrower, obviously, but can you give us an idea of the scale of Hansgrower in the UK? Yeah, so Hands Grower, we're a proud manufacturer of showers and taps with two brands, Hands Grower and Axor. As a company, Hands Grower is synonymous with great design, innovation and pioneering. That's really what we're renowned for, Andrew. So we've got a proud industry list of firsts. Then, of course, quality being a German manufacturer. But increasingly, you know, sustainability credentials are really coming to the fore. And whilst we develop great products that give a great experience, it goes well beyond that in terms of, you know, our sustainability credentials around our processes, our facilities. And it's not always what's visible as well. So sustainability as a as a huge part of Hands Grower's DNA. In the UK, where um, it was started in the early 90s by, by our mutual friend, Ian McKinley, who, who launched the subsidiary. And from that time, it's gone from strength to strength. We've had 10 years of growth since the 2009 recession, where we've outperformed the market, you know, culminating in a record year last year. It might be challenging to repeat that this year. But um, our approach, Andrew, is really to engage with consumers, specifiers and installers. There are our partners, showroom partners, merchants, project partners. And we've grown across, you know, all the channels in recent years. But one thing I would say, Andrew, is that through that time, we've remained true to, to where we started out, which was specialist retail showrooms. We're still dealing with many uh, customers who started out with us on the journey and we've grown together. So our approach in the UK is two-tier distribution. We don't trade with everyone. Our philosophy is to collaborate with like-minded customers, similar values, similar mindset, but then you know, really work intimately, really get to know and understand their business and ultimately, our, our role is to really listen and learn where our customers are going, what they're doing, 
and help them do it better. So we have a high level of trust and engagement with our partners. Vic Hansgrohe is definitely one of those classic independent retailer bathrooms, kitchen studio brands. It's a real bellwether of what's actually happening in the market. Mm-hmm. So what is the current status, uh, as we speak now, of manufacturing and supply and delivery and that kind of thing? Is everything back to normal? Yeah, I mean, from a, we're in a strong position. I'm very fortunate, Andrew, that through the great work of our employees in Germany, we've, we've been unaffected. Deliveries and stock levels are excellent, uh, and that's remained the same throughout the crisis. We also have our, our own warehouse in the UK, which is well stocked, and we've had experience of increasing our stock levels through our Brexit planning last year. So we're in a strong position. In fact, just before the crisis and lockdown, we just opened a new production facility in Germany to increase our capacity on special finishes. So we've seen huge demand, particularly on matte black. And and from September this year, we'll have ranges of matte black, which will be available ex stock in the UK, which is a significant investment for the business. But that's what our customers are telling us is what they need. So, no, in summary, our showrooms, you know, can really uh, display promoter ranges with, with absolute confidence and excellent availability. In terms of, you know, more locally, just before, in fact, before the government, we, we activated our disaster recovery plan where we had a, a number of scenarios and uh, one of them was, you know, taking the business remotely. So I'm very proud of the amazing job that our IT team have done in terms of making sure that we've had no disruption uh, in supply or service and it's working extremely well. So, yeah, no, we're operational and in July we reopened the water studio in Clark and Well and, and welcomed customers back there as well. Obviously, uh, with new guidelines to, to protect our customers and employees alike. Which is all fantastically positive news. What about the, you guys on the road? Have you got them back out visiting people yet, or is it still all remote? How's that working? No, we've got our whole sales and marketing team are, are available, along with our customer service operations. So, yeah, they're, they're, everyone's fully operational, Andrew. We're naturally being flexible in terms of you know whether customers would prefer a conference call or a personal visit. But, you know, as a responsible employer, we've conducted risk assessment, issued new guidelines to organise customer meetings, and we provided all our employees with PPE kits. So, this, you know, that supports our number one priority throughout this crisis, which has been the well-being of our employees. Of course, you know, we're, we're, we're sensitive to each customer situation, but we've been contacted by quite a few customers that have said, as long as we adhere to safety measures, then they're happy to see us. So, as a business, we'll, we'll never compromise uh, on safety but we're not waiting for opportunity Andrew you know we're looking to create opportunities working alongside our showroom partners. That's a brilliantly organised definitely your German heritage uh, coming to the fore there. (laughs) Give us a snapshot if you can Jay of of how the market how the how the sector looks to you right now and you've got your retail channels you've got your big contract channels as well but what's your interpretation you must get asked this all the time by your bosses or the people that work for you What's your interpretation of how the market looks right now? I think it's improving, but it would be from a you know decline of twenty percent GDP in April. So you know May will be better than April, June will be better in uh, May, and uh, July will be better in June, hopefully. But I think it's looking further ahead, Andrew, in terms of the second half of the year. And you know that's a ten million dollar question in terms of what it'll look like. I think. You know, there's probably two ways of viewing it. I do believe there are some further challenges that, that lay ahead short term. We're probably two cliff edges, one being the end of July when the, the government retention scheme is reduced uh, and then in October when the scheme completely finishes. Uh, you know, and sadly, it's widely expected that there could be 
two big spikes in unemployment. And, and here's the thing, I think it's, you know, what's the impact this news has on consumer confidence? Kitchen and bathrooms are obviously a considered purchase and it's whether consumers feel confident enough to proceed or delay, say, another year in fear of job security and tougher times. I heard a, an interesting quote that caught my eye from a clothes retailer the other day and they said they expect June and July to be like December and then the next six months to be like January. Perhaps that sums it up in terms of, yeah, there will be some pent-up demand, but it won't won't be easy. I think we're all going to have to create more value than ever before. I think probably the flip side as well, Andrew, I think, you know, guess not not so many people will be going on holiday this year. So perhaps there'll be some more disposable income that will be redirected to home improvements. In addition, if the property market picks up, uh, there could be a new group of would-be buyers trading up and out of London. I mean, I think it's interesting in my, my last role in global projects, you know, we talked a lot about urbanisation and this move to mega cities. And, you know, even in 40 years time, 80% of the population would live in 400 mega cities. But I think this global pandemic would have slowed that trend down, and particularly in the UK. But, you know, there are signs people are looking to, to move into the more rural areas, the countryside. And I think that's interesting because that could create more opportunity for the kitchen and bathroom industry. And of course, if people don't move, then you know, they may stay and improve, which would also be good for the industry. So I think short term, Andrew, that there are some challenges, but there are definitely some more positive ind- indicators further down the road. How is it possible for you to, in, in, in any reasonably accurate way, to predict what demand might be? That's part of your job, isn't it? To predict demand, to make sure your warehouses have got the products you need in them and the, the factories are making as much, enough stuff for you to stock it with. Where do you even start predicting demand right now? I mean, that's a, that's a good question, Andrew. I, I mean, it is very challenging because the baseline has disappeared from, from what, you know, all companies forecast. And it's become very, very difficult. We're all having to learn to live with that. And whilst we've all, you know, maybe lived through through recessions, no no one's lived through a, a global pandemic before. So that, that makes it very challenging because everything's new. I think for, for us, you know, what, what we can look to being a global business is that we, we obviously trade in over 140 countries worldwide. So, you know, we've got a good experience of, of what we've seen in, in France, Italy, Spain, who were affected from the crisis uh, quite severely as well. But, you know, they, they've really bounced back. And I would say, Andrew, they're maybe three or four weeks ahead of us. And they've really bounced back strongly. But again, whether that's pent up demand, only time will tell. In Germany, it's remained strong. Obviously, they've, they've fared better with the crisis there but it's it's challenging and and you continuously have to to adapt and and i think there's a a degree of having to move your line constantly to to come up with accuracy in terms of forecasting you mentioned it right at the top there about what role sustainability was playing in this market up until all this happened it was becoming the key driver for the next decade and i've said that several times i thought this was the time that sustainability really would start to become the principal driver for any manufacturer and design led company like yours do you think that's been set back in any way significantly by this coronavirus priorities have changed or do you think that the impetus of that the momentum of that will 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 just come right out the other side of it i don't think so andrew i I think if anything, it may highlight that even more now. I think clearly you know, we're going to go into recession if we're not already into recession. I think what you'll see is more conscious consumption. A lot of people will have less money to spend. Not so many bonuses or commissions will be earned this year. So I think consumers will be more careful on what they spend, more thoughtful with their purchases. But 
I think what you'll see is this move to people wanting to be more sustainable. And I think, you know, that, that, that could be positive news for those brands that are invested in that area as well. Because of the other thing as well, I think we've all spent a lot more time at home doing a lot more research. And I think, you know, consumers will become more savvy and knowledgeable on products and brands that they select. And I, I think those companies that, you know, invested in, in their sustainability credentials will come to the fore. But it's hard, isn't it, I guess, in any times of recession or economic downturn, whatever it's been caused by, whether it's collapsing banks or coronavirus, is that it then becomes a, a, a fight for volume. It becomes a fight for, for, for revenue. And perhaps R&D takes a bit of a backseat during those times. I guess this is where being a big global company comes into its fore because you can still put resource into that kind of research. Yeah, I, I, if you look at uh, history, and, and we're celebrating 120 years next year, Andrew, you know, for me, the, the one thing that's reassuring, which you know we've, we've had communicated from a senior management board, is that our investment into R&D, innovation and new products, you know, won't be impacted by this crisis at all. You know, next year, well, hopefully we'll be celebrating uh, ish in Frankfurt, the, the big bathroom trade fair there. You know, we've got a, an exciting lineup of products, you know, really I think going to see some interesting um, evolution of the smart bathroom as well. So, no, you know, that that is really, really core to everything we do, Andrew, and that, that investment will continue well beyond next year you know we've got roadmap to 2025 and beyond and i think for us as a, as a key subsidiary for the group we've demonstrated some excellent growth the last five years that we'll see continued investment not not just in terms of products that, that are rolled out from Germany, but you know more uk specific products being developed as well so on, on that side of things I, i'm really confident that you know we've got some exciting times ahead of us in terms of our product development a lot of people have taken the lockdown as an opportunity to reevaluate a lot of things in terms of process, in terms of how they operate. Do you think there'll be any permanent changes to how this industry works, in the UK in particular, because of all this experience? Or do you think it's just all going to kind of drift back to a normality? Oh, it's difficult to say, Andrew. I, I think there are so many things that will influence changes in wider society so short term yes for sure more people will work from home more people will do research than ever before but my personal view is you know we're not only human beings we're social beings and I, I do think we will return to an environment where we network again you know return to offices return to showrooms and for an experience and return to events so Certainly, if there's a vaccine developed on mass scale next year, that could change the environment very quickly, positively. I think apart from from a business perspective, a lot of companies will review their supply chain. And, and I believe you'll see a trend supporting more local. I'm not saying it's the end of globalization, but I think you'll see a slowdown of that. And people review their supply chains and how they perform through this crisis and businesses will diversify and, and look to really tackle any weaknesses so i think you know the, the companies will definitely look to build a more sustainable transparent supply chain i think the other you know one big trend you'll see as well andrew i think digital will be everywhere and it has to be to engage with the new customer scale online and i think you'll see a lot more design contactless in store online experiences uh, for our industry you know this will be you know, a lot more virtual tours video content case studies you'll see a lot more brand assets available online. So I think that, you know, there'll be a lot of innovation that's happening around digital, not not only to enhance the customer experience, but to really humanise the the consumer experience. And that'll be across all channels and all platforms. 
Yeah, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that how that does play out and what the tale of that sudden evolutionary leap forward that lots of people have taken digitally, both consumers and uh, suppliers and retailers, how long that lasts and what, what actually sticks around. Yeah. Well, look, Jay, thank you so much for your time today. I do appreciate it. We're both sweating profusely, I'm sure, by now. <laughs> but we do have to answer the most important question. We've heard your views on the, on the market, but no one really cares about that. All they really want to know, Jay Phillips, uh, head of Hands Grow in the UK, what is your deserted kitchen island disc? Uh, well, Andrew, uh, that's the toughest question of all. But, but before I answer that, can, can I just say one thing, Andrew? I, I think these last few weeks have been very challenging for, for the whole industry. And I, I'd just like to say, I think you and the whole team at KBB Review have done a, a great job in both supporting, communicating and promoting the industry as a whole. So I think the um, Save Your, Our Skills campaign is a fantastic initiative as well. So I'm sure on the behalf of the whole industry, Andrew, I'd like to thank you and, uh, and keep up the great work. Well, that's very kind of you, sir. It really is, but it's it's not going to make me like your song anymore <laughs> if it's a rubbish one. All righty. Well, a real uplifting song for me that uh, I never get tired of listening to is I Can See Clearly Now from Johnny Nash. Oh, you know what? I'll let you off that. A needless bit of uh, gumph you just gave me because you've chosen a fantastic song. So that is, what a great record that is. And the original Johnny Nash version as well, brilliant. They did, that's right, absolutely. And uh, I think certainly this week it's been full of bright, sunshiny days. Or sweaty, one or the other. That's the UK version of that song, isn't it? Uh, I can see vaguely now the sweat has come. Yeah. Thank you for your time, mate. I really appreciate it. And we'll catch up again soon. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Go well. Bye-bye now. Cheers, mate. Now, understanding your customer has never been more important in this whole new normal that we're living in. So I'm so pleased that down the line now, hopefully, we have Philip Adcock, who is a proper guru in the psychology of retail and the customers. Hello, Philip. Are you there? Yes, Andrew, I am. Hello, sir. How are you getting on? I'm very good. Very good in these strange, unprecedented is the words we have to use, times. Yes, I think unprecedented is a word that we've all learned how to spell much better than we used to. Now, I've been deliberately very vague in the description of what you do, Philip, as I thought it's probably best to let you explain it, as it's such an interesting field. So give us a potted explanation of of what your expertise actually is. The elevator one-sentence answer is that I make it easier for people to buy products. And that could be a bar of chocolate, a kitchen, a carpet, a car. Uh, And I use behavioural science and psychology to do that. Right, so this is about gauging what customers are, are thinking, what's, what they're thinking consciously and subconsciously when they enter a retail environment. Yes, if you, if you take, uh, people know about a customer journey, so they see something, they want it, they desire it, they look into it, they end up hopefully buying it. Uh, and this takes that journey step by step, piece by piece, and says, how does the brain of the customer function going through that process? And we can talk about bits of the brain going forward, keeping it straightforward, but a lot of things online is worse than bricks and mortar but a lot of things retail aren't very consumer brain friendly again it's very easy to think of this as quite an esoteric thing but actually you're talking about the signage the layout the direction people take around the store i mean it's very practically based stuff this isn't it absolutely this is once you take the human brain you'll start to see how things suddenly jump out as being improvable uh, if i can give a, a brief example nothing to do with kitchens and bathrooms anything like that Take an advert for wine. It's a poster that was around Ascot Racecourse. And the poster, as you looked at it, had the bottle on the right, the glass on the left, and above the glass was some text saying, buy this wonderful wine. We looked at it and said, in this world, 90% of people are right-handed. So if they want to reach in mentally and grab that glass of wine, the bottle's in the way. If you move the bottle 
to the left and the glass to the right, so they can metaphorically reach and grab the glass, it's easy to think about drinking the wine, the wine sales will go up. The client at the time said we were talking gibberish, rubbish, ignore this. But when we left the room, they did it anyway, and sales went up 32%, just by switching wow. it to the favour of right-handers. So take any store, any showroom, any website, does it actually favour right-handers? Easy point one. That's so clever, isn't it? And, and I, I mean, I, I am a big fan of this kind of stuff. I, I find this stuff so fascinating. But that is just such an obvious thing that, that even the customer themselves would never even have consciously been aware of. But the first question here really is the obvious one, but I guess a lot of the work you do is with the kind of FMCG type sector, you know, the, the going into a shop, picking something off a shelf, taking it to the till, buying it and leaving again, and the psychology of that. But obviously the KBB sector uh, is a much, much more considered purchase. It involves many visits to the store. It involves establishing a relationship with the retailer and the customer. But is there a difference in the psychology of that or are the principles basically the same? Believe it or not, a lot of the principles are the same. Um, I'll touch on a few of them in a moment. The answer I give a lot of people to this question when they say, my customer's different, which is what a lot of people like to say, is it's the same person. The lady that buys a tank full of petrol at Tesco also buys some cosmetics from Boots. The customer is the same. The brain of the customer is the same thing. So when they say customers are different, frankly, they're not as different as a lot of people think they are. Imagine then I own a kitchen and bathroom showroom uh, and it's very nice, I'm doing okay, but of course what this whole lockdown coronavirus thing has made me do is rethink how my business might work. Uh, It's made me evaluate what works and what doesn't. Where would you start with me if you were advising me? Human emotion. And I could go on about this for hours, so I will try very hard not to because it's my sort of specialist subject. But as a species, we've had emotions for 300 million years. As we've evolved from the things that crawled out of the swamps, we've had words for about 20,000 years, and we've had numbers for about 10,000 years. It takes 30,000 years for our brain to evolve meaningful change, in other words, grow an inch in size. So strictly speaking, our brains haven't yet got round to words and numbers. Yet an awful lot of communication we see in stores is words and numbers. Pictures really do speak a thousand words. And as soon as you make something emotional, you get a connection with the shopper. And once you have an emotional connection, our emotional brains are so much more powerful than our rational brains. Um, Emotions are 24 times more persuasive and 3,000 times faster than rational thought. So in answer to your question, stores have to get emotional. Particularly kitchen and bathrooms, they are an incredibly important part of your home. It is where you gather with your family. It is where you wash and clean yourself. That emotive connection to it is probably greater than you know, a packet of cornflakes or something. Hugely so, hugely so. And, and the one we're looking for, obviously, love, which isn't strictly an emotion, but you know, all this caring for your family, looking after your family, that's, uh, all that sort of pride and confidence, their, their emotions. But the one we retailers are, there's a bit of a disconnect at the moment, Andrew, is it's trust. Shoppers want to trust where they're going to buy things. So I know we've got a recession coming and everybody's going to shoot me down from what I'm about to say, but it's not all about money at the moment. People are going to where they feel they can trust to get a, a safe experience with the COVID thing. They can trust the products they buy because what they really don't want to do is go and buy a product and have to take it back or have a problem with it. So they've got to go there again after they've psyched themselves up to go and look at this showroom of kitchens or bathrooms. So trust is the one. 
Right, okay. So how would you go about then making, you know, those kitchen bathroom showrooms emotional? In my experience, and this is not meant as a negative thing, but they're not busy shops. They are not places where lots of people gather, even even less so at the moment for obvious reasons. So they tend to be, I think, sometimes slightly imposing to sort of walk into a little bit. Would would you say that was an emotive reaction? Yes, I I definitely. I mean, there's two ways of looking at this. Um, I've done work in showrooms and so I sort of speak with sole authority as in we've measured what people do in these different sorts of environments and the first thing you can do is create intimacy the couple or family looking at the kitchen or bathroom don't want to feel like they're in the center of a 5,000 square foot showroom with lots of other shoppers or not looking at them in a showroom you need to create the room sets so divide it up so when you're in this kitchen you can actually visualize it in your own home Right, so one of the um, the things that you, you've already touched on a little bit is about pinging people's Im- emotions, but also their senses a little bit more. Uh, I, th- I think a lot of retailers bake some bread or whatever it is to get the smell of, of that going around the showroom. But how, how much further can they go with pinging people's senses when they're walking around one of these showrooms? An, an awful lot, but they can go two ways. And this is often what happens in retail. So to use a bad example from a few years ago, a major department store, um, used to play quite trendy music because they were trying to portray a trendy image. But then when they stopped to look around specifically on a Thursday, who was in their store, there was very few people under 65. You know, you have to create the sensory environment for the people, not the staff. So I suppose what I'm saying is if you've got senior people going around looking at kitchens and bathrooms, you don't want to be playing the latest rock music, whatever they call it nowadays. Uh, but <laughs> the point is we are, as a species, we have five senses, sight, sound, smell, touch, and taste. And all the time, all these our senses are picking up signals of what the environment around us. They're preparing us for one of three courses of action. So this is, this is really simple, but follow my train of thought, if you don't mind. Yeah. Our brains think of only three things. We're driven by three things, fight, flight, and find a mate. That's the three things. So any sensory thing you pick up on, something you look at, you smell, or you hear, for example, or touch, the first thing your brain does with it says, is this a threat? Is it a possible meal? Is it a possible mate? And that's the emotional connection. It's so important to get the right sense, all the senses working. So you might have a beautifully dressed set, but for some reason there might be a smell of pot noodle where somebody's just had their lunch in the showroom. Yeah. That'll ruin it. You have to understand all people's senses. We did a piece of work on all things for carpets a few years ago, and we were trying to make one carpet brand stand out from the others. It'll be carpet showroom. And one of the things we did was we put a softer floor covering in front of this carpet display, but not in front of the others. So when people looked at this particular brand of carpet, it felt softer underfoot. They didn't realize that because that's the subconscious doing what it does. And in a six-week trial, um, sales of that brand went up 350%. Another one I must touch on, I've touched on smell, but we did some work where we pumped the smell, a smell into a store. You mentioned fresh baked bread. That's, that's widely known to be pumped into stores, as same as sports stores pumping fresh grass, freshly mown grass. But we pumped the smell of chocolate into a supermarket and we got a 41% increase in sales of chocolate. And we spoke to 200 plus shoppers about their experience in the store and not one mentioned smelling chocolate. That's the importance of smell and the right smell, not the wrong smell. It seems very manipulative, though, doesn't it, Philip, when you talk about it like that? Yes, it is. And I think what I'm trying to say, I mean, I, I, I used to be many years ago, I used to be a merchandising manager for a major retailer. And merchandising was known as manipulation with integrity. So that's, I take your point fully on board. But stepping back to that, the point I'm trying to make is just as nobody notices the smell of chocolate, which is manipulative, 
they but they act on it. Nobody will say they notice the smell of rubber or say in the showroom, but their brains will act on it. So you yeah. do really have to audit your showrooms in quite detail from a multi-sensory perspective. If you were a customer, what can you smell? If you're a customer, what can you hear? If you're a customer, what is the sensation underfoot? Is it hard? Is it soft? Is it crunchy and dirty? Is it clean? All this affects shoppers' trust towards you and their emotional feeling about the store they're in. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, and we, we're getting into the sort of psychological language here, which I think is, which is great, is cognitive bias, which is, it sounds about as psychological as you can get. But it's basically a series of, as we've just been saying, subconscious decisions that a customer might make dependent on, on what's in front of them. There are more than 100 cognitive biases. What a cognitive bias is, is up until very recently, we all assumed that the human species was this advanced computer that sort of rationally worked out things and calculated the best answers to questions and so on and so forth. This actually isn't right. Our brains are biased in lots and lots of ways. A simple example I can give is, is a thing called loss aversion. Loss aversion is if you lose £10, it feels twice as bad as finding £10. So there's a, a ratio of two to one. A loss hurts twice as much as a gain. So if you think about any promotional campaign, special offers, you need to frame them as loss aversion. Save £10, not here's 10% extra free. Yes. There's another one. This is, oh, you'll love this one. Here we go. Hyperbolic discounting. I know it sounds like what it sounds like, what it sounds like. But hyperbolic discounting is very important in any big ticket item purchase because what it says is that your brain over prefers immediate gain the deferred gain. So if I was to offer you a chocolate now or two chocolates in a week's time, you'll want the chocolate now. If I offer you a chocolate now or 10 chocolates in a year's time, you'll still want the chocolate now because you want immediate gain. Your brain can't think about added benefit later on. You've mentioned chocolate so many times now, Philip, that quite <laughs> frankly, I'm salivating. But you know, in my very limited knowledge of this, there's some that kind of apply very much to this market, I think. For example confirmation bias which is if you already like it you're more likely to like things that are like it if you know what I mean. yes so if you already like uh, a certain brand of kitchen a certain style of kitchen you're more likely to notice the good things about it and the good bullet points about it on the show card or what the salesman says about it and, and less likely to hear acknowledge any criticism of your liking so that if the showroom manager tries to take you from um, an oak kitchen to a white glass kitchen but you've decided on oak he's pushing snow uphill to mix with metaphors because you made a decision you won't hear his bad news your brain won't ignore it and the reason why i'm focusing on that is because one of the things that's changed over the lockdown or has grown exponentially over the lockdown is of course the amount of research people will do before they even get near a showroom the amount of information that is available to them before they even get to the retail environment and therefore when they enter it they're pretty much already half made up their mind about what they might want you know if it's a competitor's product that's a different story but that comes more down to understanding customer needs. One of the famous things about the internet where bricks and mortar readers can still fight back is the internet can't do empathy. It can't feel sorry for people, it can't side with them, it, it's just there. Um, so for example, a kitchen and a bar or a bathroom are quite often quite stressful purchases and it's the fear of getting it wrong. Now, it's not as easy for the internet to put its arm around you and say, there, there, we'll sort this. But even with social distancing, the store can. That leads us on to another. Believe it or not, as a species, we don't know the price of a lot of stuff. A lot of people won't know what a kitchen costs, won't know what a, a bathroom tap costs. The only way they get to find out is context. So when you see a row of them, 
and the cheapest one tap is £10, the most expensive £1,000, then they can start to understand what taps cost, and they will base their value judgment on that. So if you go into a kitchen showroom, and the first one you see is this kitchen, 999. There we go, nice simple one. Your brain will say, oh, right, kitchen's about a grand then, are they? So you then try and sell a kitchen for 10 grand, you've got a lot of work. But conversely, you go the other way. You lead with your bespoke, only sold in Mayfair, London kitchen at 25 grand in the window as a real showstopper. People won't come in because they thought, I can't afford 25 grand for a kitchen. So there's a whole science behind pricing and context that people should pay attention to. I mean, there's, you know, do you go high by the door and low further in? It's the sweet spot in between. Yes, and of course in these showrooms, or most of these showrooms, there are no prices available at all. We can talk about cars here, if I may just briefly, because this is, this is relevant. Yeah. The way cars do it, if, I, if you went into Costa Coffee and you're still in the queue and I came up to you and said, will you pay £300 for this little plastic holder for your coffee? You tell me where to go. If you go into a, a car showroom with these lovely cars, you'll happily tick the box as, do you want the cup holder for £300? Because against a £30,000 car, it's nothing. What the car showrooms cleverly do, and the Germans especially, is you, you start with the basic package and then you upsell the bits. Because once you've got the people conditioned to £3,000, another £30 is nothing. Yes. Again, it is funny because I think retailers listening to this will be thinking, well, after 20 years of doing this, you know, I've done a lot of this stuff already. But a lot of the work that you do with retailers, I guess, is these kind of marginal gains, aren't they? The idea that by slightly tweaking this and slightly emphasising that, you can add all these marginal gains up into, into a significant advantage. I'm going to sound extremely big-headed now, and I, I, I apologise, but it's the only way I can get the point across. Over the 20-odd years I've studied consumers, shoppers, psychology, behavioural science, I've amassed a database of 1,500 specific insights that you can apply in a retail situation online to influence, nudge, change consumer shopping behavior. I have never gone to a client's office, looked at their offering that we've discussed and said, you're doing it all right. It is marginal gains. Everybody can do things 1% better. And if you do 100 things, each 1% better, that's one heck of a big improvement. You may be thinking, yeah, I'm doing this right. I've been doing this years and years. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm pretty sure you can do it even better, whoever you are. The word to try and take away from all these showrooms we're talking about is friction. You play the part of a customer, go through the entire process within your showroom or showrooms and identify any friction point, anything that's slightly not as easy as it could be, and then think about how you could change that. In my head, the real proponents of this are probably uh, supermarkets, I'm guessing. They're the ones that must analyse everything to the nth possible degree of where your eyes are moving, where your hands are moving. They analyse all the, the, the club card data and everything else to try and get you in that environment to purchase as much as possible at once. Here's a, a sad admission from an industry. In the 90s and 80s, that was exactly the case. You would find that the ready meals aisle was wider than the tinned food aisle because you'd walk slower down it. You'd see the product, you'd more like to buy them. Um, they would do different sorts of lights on the fresh meat to make, make it look even fresher. And there's lots going on, uh, just altering people's behavior, slow doors to slow you down before you go in so you shop near the door. That was the way it was in the 80s. Nowadays, because of our accountants' friends, they're not. Honestly, the retail is nowhere near as sophisticated as you'd like to think. There are exceptions. But in this country, retail is just about big rooms full of stuff and letting shoppers make their own mind up. You know, so often you can be in a store and you don't actually know what store you're in. They're all cream shelves. They're all light brown floor. They're all the same lighting. They're all selling the same brands. Hence, one of the reasons of the death of the high street. No, retail's not in a good place at the moment. And it, it's not fighting back effectively against online. 
Bricks and Mortimer can be the multi-sensory experience shoppers desire, crave, and need to make a big ticket purchase. But they have to play that card. And, and if you're not making the most of your multi-sensory showroom, then people might as well go online, and they will. Let's bring it up to date here a little bit, because the, a lot of retailers have introduced measures into their showrooms because they want to make it COVID safe for obvious reasons. But the psychology of, of what that presents the consumer walking through the door is actually very stark, isn't it? If you've got perspex screens and one-way systems around the showroom and all that, surely that must be an obvious barrier to, to the kind of experience that you're talking about. Yes, and I've, I've actually done some work with some other companies on this, this very situation. For example, we did some work with the pharmacy before COVID, and they wanted their pharmacy to stand out more in a supermarket and be very differential. So they created a new design, very distinctive design for this pharmacy, and it happened to feature yellow and black chevrons around the counter and mm. footfall dropped by half and they couldn't work out why we did the work we do we analyzed the psychology and the behavior of the people and thought, that's the same chevrons they use on electrical warning tape keep away it's dangerous so people saw this pharmacy in, in the supermarket chain and thought, i'm not going anywhere near it my brain's telling me to keep away because i've been conditioned to keep away from yellow and black chevrons they took away the chevrons footfall went straight back up again what's happened now and this this is bringing it right up to date is everything in a store is now in the wrong place. So, sorry to go back to grocery, but it's, it's an easy example. Of the queue, you used to have the impulse purchases where people are queuing to tempt them for that one more item. In a grocery store, that might be some sweets or some healthy snacking or something like that. But now the queue's outside waiting to get in, and there's nothing apart from big, frightening two-meter signs. So by the time people get in the store, they have no desire to loiter and hang around and casually browse. It's a mission. They don't want to get in other people's way. They want to get through that and out. And it's a case of, I think, one of the kitchen companies advertising personal visits to the store. So that's a good idea because you're letting people feel they can stay as long as they like, which is going against all the stuff the COVID warning signs and the screens are doing. Yes, the big thing at the moment is by appointment only. That They could open by appointment only during the lockdown, but now a lot of people are continuing with that or want to continue with that. But it does promote a certain kind of elitism to it, don't you think? It could, um, but that's not a bad thing as long as you can demonstrate you're offering value as well. Elitism says expensive, but this is the nervous customer who you're trying to get to trust you. I'd almost suggest somebody might want a trial looking at what museums do and art galleries and places like that. You're left to wander on your own by appointment only. No salesman pushing and shoving you in all the left. But before you leave, you have to go through the, the gift shop. The gift shop in this case is you have to meet with the consultant, discuss your experience, what you've just done. So there's no pressure when you're going around the showroom. And if I can be honest, a lot of the time... These showrooms can do this because they're not that busy. Philip, we could literally talk about this for hours. And if, if it's OK with you, we'll come back to you again at some point and maybe talk, you know, go into a bit more in, in depth on some of these points. Really, like I say, I think this is a real introduction to a world that people sort of know a little bit about already by experience. But as you say, marginal gains could make a big difference by just increasing the awareness of it. Yes. I'm going to perform a psychological experiment on you now, Philip, if that's OK. Ooh. And just so you know, everyone is going to judge you incredibly by what you by your answer. So, what is your deserted kitchen island disc? What is your most feel-good, positive sing-along in the car song? Dear, dear, I could give you a list. I give it. Oh, I know, I know what it is, and it is your song by Elton John. Excellent choice. I think that's the first appearance of Elton John, if I'm right, through all these episodes. So, thank you very much. That very good choice. The best song ever about writing a song. <laughs> and it, it can apply to anybody who hears it. Exactly. Philip, thank you so much for your time, sir. I really do appreciate it. This is such a fascinating area. We will revisit it. 
and I will put your uh, website address, which is adcocksolutions.com. I will put that in the episode description for everyone to come along and have a look. There's lots of really interesting information on the kind of things that you've been talking about here on that website. So I'll put that on there. And obviously, if people want to get in touch with you, they can do it through that site as well. But for now, Philip, thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. That's it for today's show. I hope you found some useful stuff in there, and I'd love to know what you all think. All the links you need for further info are in the episode description. So my thanks to the two Philips of Jay and Adcock, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.